If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, for this final Sunday of Advent, we conclude with a very powerful text here in the first chapter of Colossians, verses 21 to 23. So please follow along with me as we read together from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning beginning in verse 21. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask now that you would help us to hear again the good news that Jesus Christ, the Savior of your people, has been born. He has come into this world He's laid down His life, He's risen again, and He's coming again, Father, one day very soon. Pray that You would help us to hear that good news with ears of faith. Pray, Father, that we would be conformed now to the image of Christ through the preaching of Your Word, and that You would be at work among us, God, by Your Spirit, through Your Word. Father, help us not to overlook what incredible grace it is to be gathered together as the people of God, under the Word of God, seeking to hear what You have spoken. Help us, God, to be expectant and to be joyful and to be full of hope that You will not leave us to ourselves. Father, help me now to speak the words of the Scriptures with truthfulness and with faithfulness, God. Pray, in fact, that Your Word would stand out, not mine. And we ask, Father, that You would Help us to hold fast to the gospel uh, as we wait for the day that Christ will return. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. Well, if we took a poll this morning of least favorite subjects in school, I would guess that grammar would rank pretty high on that list. Math is number one on my list, but grammar, I bet, is pretty high on people's lists. I know that was somewhat true for me when I was in school. My middle school English teacher wore an insane number of bracelets on her wrists. I mean, more than you thought a human being could wear and still lift their arms. An insane number of bracelets. And so every day when it came time to do grammar, the bracelets would clang against the board as she wrote that day's lesson, and it was intolerable. (laughs) What's a noun? Bracelets, banging. Where's the adjective? I don't know. All I hear is bracelets. I mean, listen, for a 12-year-old boy, diagramming sentences is bad enough, but the cacophony of the bracelets, just put it over the top. So I don't have very fond memories of learning grammar, and I'm sure that that's true for many of you. And that's unfortunate. Because sometimes in reading the Bible, the grammar reveals the glory. 
Every once in a while, something as mundane as a pronoun will tell you nearly the whole story. Our passage today is one such example. Since verse 15, the Apostle Paul has been piling up pronouns in reference to Christ. He is through Him, for Him, in Him, He is. Verse after verse, it's been all about the person and work of Christ. He, Him, His. And rightfully so, as we've seen over the past few weeks. Christ is the center, the supreme Son of God, the ruler of creation, the one who holds all things together. It's no surprise then that Paul has been so taken up with the Lord Jesus. He, Him, His. Christ is supreme over all. But when we hit verse 21, Paul shifts. And instead of saying, He is, or through Him, Paul says, and you. The grammar reveals the glory. All that's true of Christ now comes to bear for the salvation of His people. It's a stunning transition, really. Paul takes these profound truths about the Lord Jesus Christ and he applies them directly to Christians. The Son of God who has reconciled all things in Himself has reconciled you, Paul says. The Son who made all things and sustained all things has made you right with God, Paul writes. All of those wonderful he's and hymns, they're all applied to you, Paul declares. You see, the grammar in some sense reveals the glory, for it reminds us that the Son of God truly did lay aside His glory for us and for our salvation. Friends, it's absolutely appropriate that we've come to this passage on the last Sunday of Advent, just a couple of days before Christmas morning. This text so clearly refocuses our hearts and reminds us of the Gospel. Both our need for a Savior and Christ's role in accomplishing that salvation. Verses 21-23 to are a Gospel summary in three points. And that's what makes this passage so appropriate for Advent's final Sunday. To truly understand the glory of Christ's birth, you must keep Christmas, Christmas morning and Easter morning together. Why was the Christ child born in the lowly manger? So that He could take up the cross, lay down His life, and rise again for the salvation of His people. I hope we remember this over the next few days, friends. It is good to celebrate joy and peace at Christmas time, but there's only joy and peace because Bethlehem's child went on to bear Calvary's cross. A cross that you and I deserved. You see, that's why Paul shifts in verse 21 and says, you. Because we're the ones who needed the Savior. Because we're the ones who needed to be reconciled to God. As I said just a moment ago, this passage is a Gospel summary in three points. You'll notice that there are three verses. And if you take it verse by verse, there is this wonderful Gospel progression that takes us from who we were before Christ to who we are now in Christ. There's this wonderful Gospel progression. Verse 21, by nature we were enemies of God. Verse 22, by grace we have been reconciled to God. And verse 23, by faith we are kept for God. So, for this final Advent Sunday, let's focus in on Paul's Gospel summary and remember why the Son of God came down to us. 
We start in verse 21 with the bad news. By nature, we were enemies of God. By nature, we were enemies of God. Paul's first move in this paragraph is to remind the Colossians of their position prior to receiving the Gospel. Notice what Paul says, verse 21, "...and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds." Paul highlights two truths here, not just about the Colossians, but about all human beings. And honestly, neither one is easy to hear, but both are absolutely necessary for understanding the Gospel. For starters, Paul says human beings by nature are separated from God. This is the idea behind that word alienated. We're estranged from God. We're cut off from His presence. We have no covenantal relationship with His people even. The relationship between us and God is fractured. And there's this massive gulf between humanity and God. The gulf is so large, in fact, we cannot bridge it. Why not? Well, because of sin, the Bible says. Sin has separated humanity from God. So that we come into this world alienated, estranged from His presence. You may remember back in Genesis that God said sin's consequence would be death. Have you ever wondered why death was the result for sin? Why did sin bring death? Well, part of the reason is because that's what sin deserves. The judgment of God for breaking His commandments. But on another level, sin brings death because it separates us from the One who is life in Himself. It separates us from God. Remember, friends, human beings are dependent creatures. We cannot sustain ourselves. We need breath. We need nourishment. We need shelter. We know all that. But do you know what we need most in order to live? We need God. In Him, we live and move and have our being. You see, this is part of the reason why sin brings death because it separates us quite literally from God. As dire as that sounds, Paul was not finished. Not only is humanity separated from God, Paul also says we are by nature opposed to God. This is what he means when he says the Colossians were hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. They opposed God in their thinking, and that opposition was then evidenced in their actions. This is important to grasp, friends. In fact, I would say this is probably one of, if not the most important aspect about human sin that we need to understand. By nature, human beings are both unable and unwilling to come to God. We're like the little toddler who stands on the other side of the room refusing to come when his mother calls him. If you have kids, then you know this moment. Maybe you had it today. Mommy says, come here, son. And that precious little boy just stands there with his arms folded. And he might even have his eyes closed in defiance of you. Because to a two-year-old, if he can't see you, then you can't see him. He just stands there with his arms folded. And mommy says, come here. And he doesn't come. Why won't he come? Are his legs broken? No. His legs work just fine. He's unwilling to come. Right? He refuses to come. His heart is hard. And he does not want to obey. That's human nature. That's human nature apart from God. Yes, we're unable to come to Him. That's true. But we're also unwilling to do so. We stand there on the other side of the room with our arms folded and our eyes closed saying, I'm not going to do it. We don't know God. And quite frankly, we don't want to by nature. 
Friends, this is why the Bible so often describes salvation as being born again. What do sinful people need? They need a new life. Ezekiel 36, God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. It's so instructive that God doesn't say, I'll teach you better. No, He says, I'll give you a new heart. Or John chapter 3, truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Why not? Because he won't go into it. You see, we don't merely need God to reach across the gulf that we cannot bridge. That is true. But we don't merely need God to reach across the gulf. We need God to reach into our hearts and change who we are by nature. Salvation is a miracle, friends, that only God can do. Again, this is essential for getting the Gospel right. The Gospel is not the good news that God provides that little extra we couldn't provide for ourselves. No, the Gospel is the good news that God does in us and for us what we would never do for ourselves. If you gave me a thousand lifetimes, I would never choose God unless He showed me grace. This is Paul's teaching in verse 21, and it's essential for gospel faithfulness. By nature, human beings are separated from God, and we are hostile to God. We don't know Him, and we don't want to. Now, even as I say that, perhaps someone is thinking, this sounds rather harsh. Why should I believe this? I prefer to be optimistic. I'm a glass half full person. You sound like a glass half empty person. I choose to be optimistic. So why should I believe something that sounds so bleak? Maybe someone is thinking that. I think that is an excellent question to ask. And I have two answers for you. The first one is this. You should believe this because it's what the Bible teaches. Listen, I'll just tell you up front. Christianity requires that we submit to Scripture, not the other way around. If you wait for all the, uh, all the things to line up, all the pieces to make sense, it's just not going to happen. right? We submit to the Bible first. And then God grants greater understanding through His Word. So you should believe this about human nature because it's clearly taught in the Bible, as we see here in verse 21. And this is just one example among myriads of examples. So you should believe this because God says so. The second reason we should believe this is because human history confirms it. We are the evidence against ourselves. Sin entered the world in Genesis 3. And do you remember what happened in the very next chapter? One brother killed another in absolute defiance of God. Cain and Abel, Genesis 4. So you don't, you don't get more than one chapter removed from sin's arrival. And already, humanity has its arms folded and its eyes closed saying, I'm not going to do it. One chapter away. That's all it takes. And what have we been doing ever since? Carrying on Cain's legacy. Blaming God. And resorting so often to violence. So the Bible teaches this, and human history confirms it, friends. It's, it's a self-evident truth. By nature, human beings want nothing to do with God. We come into this world opposed to Him, separated from Him, even His enemies. But thankfully, friends, the teaching of Scripture does not end with verse 21. It's been said before that the most amazing part of the Bible is that it does not end with Genesis 3. 
And that's pretty incredible. It doesn't end with humanity's rebellion against God. And that's true also here in Colossians 1. As dire as verse 21 is, it's not the end of the story. Verse 22, by grace we have been reconciled to God. By grace we have been reconciled to God. Listen again to how the good news of the Gospel answers the bad news of humanity. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled. You may remember last week from verse 20 that Christ has reconciled all things to Himself by making peace through the blood of His cross. You remember the end of verse 20? And now, incredibly, in verse 22, Paul says that Christ's reconciliation also applies to His people. Christ does what we, by nature, were unable and unwilling to do. He bridges that separation and He puts an end to our hostility. That's what reconciliation means in verse 22. Christ ends our alienation and He conquers our opposition. And notice, friends, that this reconciliation changes our status before God. It changes the relationship. Look how it moves in the passage. In verse 21, Paul says, you once were alienated. He speaks in the past tense. But here in verse 22, he says, now you are reconciled. He switches to the present. You see, everything has changed. What defined us before Christ now no longer defines us. Believers are not separated from God. We now belong to God. Believers are not enemies with God. We are now His friends. Even the sons and daughters of God through Christ. Everything has changed, Paul says. The old has gone and the new has come. And understand, friends, that this change in position cannot be undone. If you belong to Christ by faith, you will never go back to being God's enemy. You will never go back to being separated from the One who is life in Himself. Why not? Why won't you go back back to that old you? Because Christ died once for all, never to die again. What's more, even now, the Lord Jesus reigns at the Father's right hand, interceding on behalf of His people. You know, it wasn't until a few years ago that I began to appreciate the heavenly ministry of Christ. I think it was preaching through the book of Hebrews. The heavenly ministry of Christ. Specifically, I mean the truth that Christ retains His flesh and blood body even as He is seated at the Father's right hand. I think most Christians know this, but I'm not sure that we've thought very deeply about it, in large part because Jesus' humanity makes us uncomfortable. But when Christ rose from the dead, He rose with a glorified but physical body, flesh and blood. Why did Jesus continue in flesh and blood? Why has the humility of the incarnation continued for the Son of God? Why? to assure God's people that the reconciliation Christ has accomplished cannot be undone. You see, for all eternity, God and humanity together in Christ. Do you see it? That's the assurance of Christ's heavenly session. By grace, believers are once and for all reconciled to Christ. Because Christ has once and for all taken up our humanity to Himself and bore it all the way to the cross. And therefore, Christians can rest assured that we will never go back to being God's enemies. Why? Because grace cannot be undone. 
Christ will never lay aside His humanity. He'll never lay aside His work. He will never cease to be our flesh and blood mediator before the Father. Jesus Christ is our reconciliation, even as Paul says here in verse 22. As the verse goes on, Paul explains how Christ has reconciled His people to God. Notice the emphasis on Christ's death. Again, verse 22. He has now reconciled, how? In His body of flesh, by His death. Friends, this is the means of our reconciliation. Believers are no longer enemies of God because the Son of God became man in order to bear our punishment at the cross. You see, it's not the incarnation alone that saves God's people. No, it's the incarnation that leads ultimately to the cross. In fact, you can say it even more strongly than that. There is no gospel apart from the death of Jesus Christ. There is no forgiveness without the shedding of Christ's blood. There is no eternal life unless Jesus first laid down His own life for ours. There is no hope, no mercy, no joy, no peace, no salvation without the shame and horror and pain and agony of Christ on the cross. You don't have Christmas without the cross. It's there on Calvary's hill that our reconciliation took place. And it's only because of the cross that sinners like us are saved. The incarnation is glorious, praise God, but it's the incarnation that leads to the cross that saves us. Friends, I hope, I hope that we hear how Paul is pleading with us to make the crucified Christ the center of life and ministry in this world. And the, I'm putting the emphasis here on the adjective crucified. You didn't know you were going to get grammar lesson today, right? The adjective crucified. The crucified Christ. Make Him the center. Remember, the Christians in Colossae were being tempted to add something to the work of Christ. The false teachers in Colossae were fine with Jesus, but they refused to give Him the place of supremacy. Think about that. They were just fine with Jesus as long as there was room for something else as well. In that sense, the false teachers in Colossae would fit in quite quite nicely with the world of 2018. Listen to me. Nearly every person you meet is fine with Jesus. His life and teaching are generally admired. And His care for the downtrodden is almost universally commended. Nearly every person you meet is fine with Jesus in general. But you put Jesus the good teacher on the cross, bearing the wrath of God, and what do you get? You get revulsion from people. You put Jesus the compassionate activist on Calvary shedding His blood, and listen to how quickly those same people who were fine with Jesus reject the one who is crucified. You see it? Not much has changed from Paul's day to ours, at least in this regard. In nearly every age, there is this compulsion to minimize the centrality of Christ by minimizing His cross. Nobody is going to dare tell you that Jesus was a wicked person, but they're going to tell you He didn't die. He didn't bear the wrath of God. And therefore, the church in every age must be about this one thing. Christ and Him crucified. You've got to get the second part. And Him crucified. Look, it's a, good, it's a good time to just pause here in the sermon and ask yourself the question, most people you know 
probably also know that you are a Christian. But do they know that the crucified Christ stands at the center of your life and your faith? Not just Jesus in general, but the crucified Christ. Do they know that, you, that your hope is found in the Son of God slain, beaten, hung upon a tree to die, only to rise again on the third day? Do they know that? I've been convicted recently of how easily I find it to talk about Christianity in general and how tentative I become whenever the topic of Jesus crucified comes up. I've made some friends with these guys at the gym. I think they like me. They call me Rev, which is kind of weird, but they, they call me Rev. Um, and they're happy to talk to me about Christianity, and I'm happy to talk to them about spiritual things in general. But even sometimes I, I, just, I feel it in my own chest when, when, the, when the opportunity is there to speak about, yeah, but Jesus died. I, I, get, I get nervous. My hands start to clam up, and I see another machine open, and I go over there, and I do that. It's just a good thing to ask ourselves, friends. What is it about our Christian witness that stands out most to people? There should be two things. Our love for one another and the truth of Christ and Him crucified. And Him crucified. That's what Paul's getting at here. There is, there is no good news apart from Jesus' fleshly body and death on our behalf. So maybe today is a good time for each of us to consider how we might give Christ His rightful place of supremacy, both in how we live and in what we say. We've seen so much grace already in verse 22, but there's actually a little more grace to go. That's the Gospel, isn't it? It keeps taking us deeper into the grace and goodness of God. And that's how it is in verse 22. Paul has explained how Christ reconciled His people, but at the end of the verse, he also explains why Christ reconciled His people. Notice again what the Apostle says, the end of verse 22. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. Now I take the hymn at the end of the verse to be a reference to God the Father. So why did Christ suffer and die on the cross? So that sinners like us might enter the Father's presence without fear of judgment. You see, this is the grand purpose of reconciliation. Not only does Christ take on our punishment so that we are not condemned, but Christ also gives us His righteousness so that we are accepted in God's eyes. Forgiven and accepted. Listen, forgiveness alone is an amazing reality. To know that all of our guilt has been canceled and cast away to be remembered no more. Forgiveness alone is amazing. But the good news of the Gospel does not stop at forgiveness. Through Christ, the Father forgives our sin, and then He goes further and bestows on us what rightfully belongs only to Jesus. The status of sons of God. God gives that to us in Christ. So if you are a Christian this morning, if you're repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ alone to save you, if you are a Christian this morning, then consider the present reality of the Gospel in your life. Right now, at this moment, you have received the full measure of the Father's love and grace. Right now. Right now, through Christ, you are fully accepted in God's sight. Right now, you can come into the Father's presence without fear of condemnation. Right now, the Father promises to hear you when you pray 
because you pray in the name of Christ. Brother and sister, do you believe that about the Gospel being true at this moment? The Father is not holding out on you. The Father is not withholding grace while waiting to see if you are worth it and if you'll live up to what He says. No, the Gospel says that God has given you His own beloved Son, which means He cannot give you anything more. He's given you the fullness of His love in Christ. What's more, because Christ's work is finished, the Father also promises to finish His work of grace in your life and in mine. Do you know that there's that connection between the finished work of Christ and the finished work of grace in your life? If Jesus fully paid for all the sins of all of His people, then God absolutely will finish His work in your life. He can't say one is finished and then leave the other incomplete. He won't do it. Because He's righteous. God will make His people more and more like Jesus. He will continue to give grace until the work of grace is done. And that means that this glorious thought is true, friends. You and I will grow. I love the idea of growth as a Christian. Don't you want to grow? You and I will grow. It's the promise of the Gospel. We will grow as Christians because this is part of why Jesus died in order to present us holy and blameless before the Father. Christ's work is finished, and that means the Father will finish His work in you as well, because it's part of the reason why Jesus shed His blood. This is the grace of the Gospel, friends. And how kind of God to remind us again, especially at Advent, how amazing this grace truly is. Christ died to reconcile His people to God, and therefore, we have this assurance that not only will God not withdraw His grace, but He will finish His work of grace as well. The Father will finish it because Christ Himself is our reconciliation. By grace, we have been reconciled to God. That brings us to verse 23 and the final step in Paul's summary. By faith, we are kept for God. By faith, we are kept for God. Now, in the flow of the letter, verse 23 sets up Paul's strategy for the remaining three chapters. Remember, again, the Colossians are being tempted to turn away from Christ. So Paul writes in large part to counter that temptation, and his aim is to encourage them to hold fast to Jesus. Hold fast to the Gospel. That's really the pastoral heart of Colossians. Christ is supreme, He has no rivals, and therefore, hold fast to Him. You can hear that pastoral concern here in verse 23. Notice again what Paul writes. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So you can pick up on Paul's emphasis here, can't you? Words like continue and stable and steadfast all stand out. And there's that very clear warning not to shift away from the Gospel. So this is a call for perseverance. And what an important point for Christians to understand. The Gospel of Christ calls for His people to persevere. To keep going, in other words. You may remember toward the end of Jesus' earthly ministry in Matthew 24, 
Jesus is speaking about the end of the age, and He says to His disciples, the one who endures to the end will be saved. In fact, Jesus said this on more than one occasion. The one who endures to the end will be saved. The rest of the New Testament then picks up from Jesus and develops this theme just as Paul is doing here in verse 23. The gospel of God's grace calls for believers to persevere. So, if if after professing faith in Christ, you turn around and deny the gospel, then the Bible says the last day will be a day of judgment for you because you did not persevere to the end. If, after professing to trust in Christ, you decide to add something to His work, Scripture says the root of genuine faith was not present in your heart because you did not persevere to the end. This is important, friends. The failure to persevere in the faith does not mean you lose salvation. It means you never truly knew Christ in the first place. For those who are saved by God's grace, persevere to the end by God's grace. That's what Paul is getting at here in verse 23. He's calling these Christians to endure to the end. The God of grace who saved them in Christ, now calls them to persevere in Christ as well. So this is serious business. Which means the question that you should be asking is, how do I do this? Perseverance is clearly essential. The one who endures to the end will be saved. So how does it happen? How does perseverance happen? Well, here's the answer, friends. It's not earth-shattering, but it is vitally important that we get this right. Perseverance happens by faith in the finished work of Christ. Perseverance happens by faith in the finished work of Christ. Again, please hear me very clearly. Perseverance is not a work that we must add to the Gospel in order to round out Jesus' work on our behalf. That's heresy. No, perseverance is continuing to trust in the work of Christ as the only means of salvation. You persevere by faith. In fact, perseverance is just a fancy way to say, keep trusting in Jesus. Keep trusting in Jesus. Indeed, that's what Paul makes clear here in verse 23. Notice where he says, not shifting from the hope of the Gospel. This is important. What is the hope of the Gospel? Is it the hope that you have for the Gospel? Or is it the hope that the Gospel creates in you? Which one is it? I think it's the second one. The hope of the Gospel is the hope that God creates and sustains in the life of a Christian. It's somewhat of a gracious mystery how this works out, but let me, let me just try to explain it. As I trust in Christ, okay, so as I trust in the Lord Jesus, I find in Him a sure hope of forgiveness and eternal life. That hope then encourages me to keep trusting in Jesus So that this process unfolds. The more I trust in Christ, the more I find there's nowhere else to turn. That there's no one else who could possibly bring a sinner like me into God's presence. You see how it unfolds here? The hope of the Gospel is so powerful that it keeps me in the faith. The hope that God creates through the proclamation of Christ is so life-producing 
that it produces in me the faith that I have to have to make it to the last day. And over time then, what happens? I persevere to the end. So let me just try to put this on a very practical level for the everyday Christian life. If you belong to Christ, every time you hear the Gospel and believe it, that is the grace of God working to save you and keep you for the last day. Every time you open the Bible and believe what God says about Jesus, that is God's work to preserve you in Gospel hope. Every time you gather with the people of God to confess sin and trust again in Christ, that is the Father's grace keeping you stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the Gospel. And therefore, we should not minimize the power of God's grace in that every day. Instead, we should view these precious, ordinary things as God's means of keeping us in the faith. Friends, I... What I'm trying to do here is get you to see how significant it is that you daily wake up and trust in Jesus. (laughs) That daily pursuit of faithfulness to Christ is so much more than merely trying to avoid sin and perpetuate good Christian behavior. The daily pursuit of faithfulness to Christ is itself the grace of God working in your heart. So every day that you trust Jesus is a day to praise Him for grace. It's the evidence that God is working in us at this moment, finishing the good work that He started. I don't know about you guys, but the growth in my Christian life is like a snail's pace. I would like it to go faster. Would you like yours to go faster? I'm sure you would. But at least that moment of hoping in Christ that comes every day, that tells me that the grace of God is present and active, keeping me in the faith. So what should we do? Paul says, if you continue. Right? It's an if here. So what should we do if we want to persevere? Very simply, you should take up your Bible. You should should serve the church. You should spread the Gospel. You should encourage the saints. And you should work heartily as unto the Lord. Those are not small things. That is God's grace at work in you for the salvation of your soul. Take up your Bible, serve the church, spread the gospel, encourage the saints, and work heartily as unto the Lord. That is perseverance in action. Not because we must save ourselves, but because we believe even now God is saving me through faith in Christ. The one who endures to the end will be saved, Jesus said. And praise God, the Father grants what He commands. By faith we are kept for God. That's verse 23. So, three verses on this final Advent Sunday that summarize for us in three truths the good news of the Gospel. By nature, we were enemies of God. By grace, we have been reconciled to God. And by faith, we are kept for God. And to think, friends, this stirring reminder began with something as mundane as a pronoun. And you, Paul says, verse 21, you. The Son of God who has reconciled all things in Himself has also reconciled you. The Son who made and sustains all things has also made you right with God. And so therefore, may we hold fast to Christ, brothers and sisters, and may we rejoice that Jesus, having come once to earth for our salvation, will soon come again to bring us finally 
and forever into the presence of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father.